Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour where we three will bring you all the science news we saw fit to talk to each other about or something along those lines. Who are we? Well, I'm Stu and with me as always I have Claire. Hello Stu. And Chris. Ahoy hoy. Claire, what have you brought for us this week? Well, Stu, this week I have a good news story, which is pretty rare, I think, um, right now, because if you're anything like me, you know, you might be doom scrolling some of the day, uh, some of the evening, all night maybe. There's not a lot of good <laughs> news out there, is there? Well, you've got to you've got to really scratch around to find it. You got to scratch around to find it. And speaking of scratching around, um, that's <laughs> that is uh, right um, right where we need to be with this story. It is about um, about a particular endangered species, the eastern barred bandicoot, and how they have um, pretty much they've gone from being extinct in the wild to you know, having such a successful breeding program that they are now, um, I mean, they're not, you know, going to be on every corner, but they're now on the just endangered. They're no longer extinct in the wild. They've been reintroduced to habitats um, and through an incredible 30-year conservation effort, um, these these beautiful little creatures from, uh, from Western Victoria have now... Uh, made their home and are no longer extinct in the wild. So they were they've gone from being almost scratched to doing back to back to scratching. Back around. to back to scratching around. And these guys they are they're obviously little survivors, um, but they also love scratching around and like bandicoots, um, you know, putting their nose in a, in, a, in a lot of little little places. They're they're awesome. So I'm going to talk all about that um, conservation effort. Um, and the innovations and the wonderful people who've been part of it. Fantastic. And Chris, I have a suspicion I know what you've been reading up on this week. It is, of course, the the annual Ig Nobel Prizes have been uh, announced for right. 2021. Yeah, that's right. And uh, this is this is also on the lighter side of science. You know, we're all feeling in a in a good mood. And yeah, the Ig Nobel prizes have been announced. If people are familiar with them, they're kind of the um I suppose the the funny equivalent of the Nobel prizes. Um supposedly for achievements that make people laugh and then make them think. Um, <laughs> do they do they get any money for the Ig Nobels? They get like a I think a trillion dollar trillion Zimbabwean dollar bill. Mm. Um, so oh whatever that's worth. Mm. Um, yeah, no, it's not quite maybe, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's they're kind of exciting thing. Maybe not as prestigious as, as the Nobel. And I'm only aware of one occasion that, um, someone has won a Nobel after winning an Ig Nobel for the same achievement, but, um. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, uh, mm. it's a bit of a rarity, but, um, yeah, I thought I would, you want to know what that one was? Yeah, I do. That was oh, about. Yeah. That was to do with the discovery of, of graphene, how to create graphene um, yeah, using right. sticky tape. Ah. And so it was kind of the weird discovery that got people uh, an Ig Nobel Prize, but also it's a very important material that has um, landed the Nobel Prize. So Yeah, wow. There you go. Um, yeah, but I'm going to be talking about the, um, the this year's Ig Nobel Prize. I'm going to 
you know, just briefly mention some of my, some of the um, the highlights, but also focus on, of course, the physics prize. <laughs> some of your highlights and the physics prize. I feel like if you made a Venn diagram out of that, they would overlap fairly. Basically, yeah. Like the physics prize, I found it really interesting. <laughs> I mean, it is. It sounds silly. It's all about um, how people, pedestrians, bump into each other or don't bump into each other. Um, it doesn't sound like real <laughs> physics, Great. but, uh, it's actually, I find it really interesting research. So I'm going to talk about that for a bit Great. and what they, what they found and how they did it. Amazing. So human particles in motion and the return of the Eastern Bard Bandicoot, both of those coming up later in the show. So stay tuned. I've got some great news. A few. Like, yeah, I know, right? I mean, and this isn't news you hear every day. Uh, After 30 years of conservation efforts, the Eastern Bard Bandicoot has been brought back from the brink of extinction. It's it's, amazing. It's it's pretty amazing. It's it's worth celebrating. It's officially gone from extinct in the wild um, and sort of gone backwards back to endangered. Um, and Zoos Victoria, which have been running a captive breeding program for these little bandicoots for 30 years, are now finishing wow. it up. They're closing so, the doors. Um, so job done. Job done. Job done. <laughs> pretty I mean, much. It, you've, got, you've got to be in a pretty bad place where getting onto the endangered list is a good thing. It, it's true. It, it, sho- yes. it shows how bad yes. it was for the, for the Eastern Bard bandicoot. That, That's yeah. right. Yeah. And that bad place is extinct in the wild. That is yep. a real bad place. Um, now, yeah, it's a it's a huge success story. And, um, yeah, we probably just need to stop and give a special shout-out or three cheers um, for everyone involved in the Eastern Bard Bandicoot uh, project, conservation project. Um, uh, so three cheers. Hip-hip hooray, hip-hip hooray, hip-hip hooray. Hey. Um, <laughs> but they are totally good fellows, etc. Yeah, et they are. They totally are. Now, I've been keeping an eye on this little bandicoot for a couple of years. I've, I've probably um, talked everyone's ear off about it at some point, and I'm sure I'm lost in science as well, more than once, because it really is an awesome story of resilience and innovation in um, conservation. So the Eastern Bud Bandicoot, if you bring to mind what a bandicoot looks like, they're around the size of a rabbit. Although, you know, I don't want to say rabbit because... We should just know what a bandicoot size is. So it's around the size of a bandicoot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, they, they, they have a cousin, which is the long-nosed bandicoot. So the Eastern Bard Bandicoot has a shorter nose um, and they have stripes on their sort of like lower butt. The eastern bars. part. On the eastern part. <laughs> on the eastern part. Only, yeah. if, only if they're traveling west. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. Uh, now, they used to be widespread across grasslands of Victoria and in Tasmania, but with habitat destructions, they became more and more rare until the 1980s when it was thought that they were totally extinct in the wild. Now, one population was found out in Hamilton, which if you know Hamilton is around, um, yeah, sort of around Western Victoria, and they found this population in a garbage tip living in old cars. Just like, like hanging Mad Max. out. Just <laughs> like Mad Max. No, no, yeah. they weren't driving the old car. Oh, they were just okay. living in the old car. <laughs> Actually, um, 
something I came up uh, with in my, in, in my research was the Eastern Bard Bandicoot was the uh, muse for Crash Bandicoot, the video oh. game. Yeah. It was that particular Bandicoot. So there you go. Crash Bandicoot does not seem to have stripes, does he? Well, maybe is he is he wearing clothes? Maybe you he can't wears see. shorts, doesn't he? He he wears shorts, so you can't see them on his okay. on you his can't eastern see end. Stripes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Phew. Um, yeah. So they found them in um, in this tip, uh, and it was the last sort of free ranging habitat of the eastern barred bandicoot, and they found around one hundred and fifty here. So back in the eighties, this led conservation groups and government agencies to go about setting up the Eastern Barred Bandicoot Recovery Team, which involved removing the species from the wild. As um, you know, there are a lot of foxes and cats there, and um, have been working on bringing back the Eastern Barred Bandicoot populations ever since this happened. Now, although this reclassification is the first time um, this has happened for an Australian species ever you know, going from extinct in the wild to endangered. There are some reasons why these little marsupials have been easier to introduce or reintroduce than other species, including, but not limited to, they breed very quickly. They have... They breed like bandicoots. They breed like bandicoots. That's right. (laughs) That's good. Now you're catching on, Chris. They have a 12 and a half day pregnancy. Amazing. Wow. And they can have up to five litters a year. And they're also incredibly adaptable to different habitats. And like I said in the introduction, they like to scratch around. They're not very fussy when it comes to eating. They will uh, go for anything. So when you're introducing them into new habitats, this is obviously pretty beneficial as they're not, they're not fussy. You, you don't need to find a particular type of food source uh, you know, to be able to reintroduce them into. So, yeah, back in 1988, when the Eastern Bard Bandicoot Recovery Program began, uh, the scientists began trialling different approaches to make sure that they were removing the threats from the environment. And this included baiting for feral species, using fences and, and whatnot. And it soon became clear that foxes and Eastern Bard Bandicoots, they don't mix. The Bandicoots don't recognise them as predators, and the foxes do something that scientists refer to as a thrill kill. Yeah, yeah, which which sounds exactly what it is. So they don't kill them to eat them, they just kill them yeah. to get rid of them. Yeah, they, they, they kill as much as they want and more than they can eat. So right. they'll just continue killing. Yeah, it's bad news, bad news for the bandicoots. So the recovery program then shifted to finding ways to make sure that foxes and bandicoots didn't come into contact. They ended up building purpose-built predator fences to exclude foxes and um, also switched to sort of a breeding program to boost the existing population as well. Now, one thing about fences is they're incredibly expensive. It's like they're, you know, just ask Donald Trump. Um, they're $40,000 per kilometre for a... Um, fox-proof fence that's a um, almost two-meter fence that's got a chicken mesh skirt to stop the foxes getting underneath and um, then a floppy overhang so that they can't jump over the top Uh, and as well as having you know these fences they need to constantly monitor these fences if there are any holes in them or if there's any you know 
potential places where the foxes can get in. So there's, there's a cost in monitoring as well. So instead of having fences, they pivoted to, um, you know, nature's fence, also known as an island. Uh, you don't have to build fences on islands. You just have to make sure there's no foxes in there to begin with. So they, they approached, um, the conservation project approached French Island, which is in southeast Victoria, about releasing bandicoots. And initially French Island were pretty wary about this, considering back in the 1800s, uh, koalas had been introduced onto French Island and there was a boom in koala populations and massive overbrowsing of uh, of certain gum trees. So they became a pest species. Koalas were a pest species, were they, on French they Island? They became a pest species on French Island, exactly. Yeah. So it took a while to bring the French Islanders around. Um, I read reports that it took them 12 years, but finally an agreement was made and the Eastern Bud Bandicoots were released onto French Island first and then onto Phillip Island, which oh. also is fox-free. I still wonder how they managed. I mean, foxes can cross bridges and there's a bridge to the mainland. But anyway, that's a question I should probably ask a scientist. There is there is on Phillip Island. There's no bridge on French Island though. Yeah, but there is on Phillip Island. Did yeah, it's the... a pretty long it's a pretty long bridge. You'd see a fox coming across the bridge for a long way. But yeah. <laughs> is, is is someone stationed on the bridge? I I mean I just have some questions. Anyway. Um Anyway, so by all accounts, on both islands, French and Phillip, the eastern barred bandicoot populations are flourishing. And this is even despite of the presence of feral cats on Phillip Island. So there are now, um, you know, we've got, we've got eastern barred bandicoots on both those two islands and there's also bandicoot populations at four feral predator-free um, fenced reintroduction sites that are on the mainland so places like woodlands historic park yeah i've seen that yeah i've been up that way yeah yeah and hamilton community parklands mount rothwell and tiverton and um exceptionally there is a tr also a trial underway using trained marema dogs so the italian guard dogs that um i don't know if anyone's seen that film um with Shane Jacobson, the one about the Marema dogs guarding the penguins. Can't remember what it's called now, but amazing. Odd, oddball. Oddball, yes, oddball. Alternatively, so the um, the um, the Looney Tunes cartoon with the sheepdog and the and the wolf um, that clock in every day. That's also, I think, based on the Maremas. Is it? Yeah. Oh well, there you go. If you've seen either of them, you'll understand that Marema dogs are are an an incredible guard dog that can be trained to guard whatever animal you want them to guard, including penguins, or in this case, Eastern Bard Bandicoots. And there are two sites, one in Skipton and one in Dunkeld in Victoria, uh, with 20 bandicoots watched over by two or three dogs at each site. So if this works, it could be the ticket for future reintroductions of not just Eastern Bard Bandicoots, but potentially other species of animals and we can see this incredibly wonderful outcome play out for animals currently extinct in the wild. You know what I you know what I think though? I'm just thinking about bandicoots and and how Australian animals, we kind of don't use their names to mean anything. But if you look at if someone says that they're squirreling away their money, we all know what that means. And if someone's getting badgered by somebody, we know what that means. 
We need we need the bandicoot to become a verb. What does it mean for a bandicoot? He's oh, he's bandicooting over there. He's and what does that mean? We we need to bring it into our into our language so that we don't yeah, forget about the bandicoots. Absolutely, bring it into common parlance. I think bandicoot. He's bandicooting over there. Is just you know he's being incredibly resilient and eating anything. Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. All right, yes, you listen to Lost in Science. As we said in the introduction, it's the time, the year, the highlight of the... Oh, there's lots of highlights of the awards calendar, let's be honest. We have the um, the uh, the Archies, or other like those, the Eureka Prizes... <laughs> We have the Prime Minister's Prizes in Australia. We have the Nobel Prize, of course. But, you know, we always get excited about the Ig Nobel Prizes awarded by the Annals of Improbable Research for research that makes people laugh and then makes people think. They're um, always very fun. They're, they're always a bit of fun. Yeah, they're always the most a, fun. They're always a good for a little of a lighthearted news item as well. You might have seen a few photos going around lately of the rhinos being suspended upside down. Mm. In the test to see whether that's a viable way to transport them. Uh, answer is yes. I did say that. From from what I read, the the experiment was to find out what was the effect of hanging rhinos upside down. Which is, you know, I can't think of a better way to test that. Uh, you know, to, to to answer that question. So yeah, then the upside down rhinos. That was they actually had been transporting rhinos from by helicopter, hanging them upside down, and. They weren't sure whether this was bad for the rhinos or not. So they did some tests suspending them from cranes and found out that, in fact, it was fine. Other favourites of this year, there was uh, the Peace Prize, which is for research that tried to show that beards on men may have evolved to protect them from punches to the face. Um, (laughs) There is a biology prize for um, some work on the meanings of cat meows, or basically cat-human communication. Oh wow! Yeah, because cats cats don't meow to other cats. Yeah, and they give certain yeah meows mean different things, and humans can interpret cat meows apparently. Like, oh yeah, they did, one I of mean, the they papers that they mentioned things. was um, comparing the uh, when there's food or when there is I can't remember the circumstances where they were distressed or something like that, and right. people could tell the difference between uh, going to the vet. That's right, between being offered oh, food and going okay. to the vet, and yeah, there was a, humans can tell the difference between what the cat is doing. It's always recent research. Um, one of the ones was for um, a new method of cockroach control on submarines. That was published in 1971. It's just alarming to think that you could have a submarine infested with cockroaches. Um, oh, that's awful. Yeah. Hang on, it was research from 1971 and yeah, they, they're getting they an Nobel now? Then. Yeah, yeah, why not? That's 50 years later. But Nobel Prizes can be done a long time later as well. You know how they say that the cockroaches would survive a, a nuclear holocaust? Are they a bigger problem on nuclear submarines <laughs> than they are in other submarines? Or is it just quite quite possibly? It's a bit like the, the foxes. You'd think that you know you could stop the fox getting onto an island. You could be able to stop your cockroach getting onto your submarine, but apparently not. Yeah, just just um pick up the tiny little draw plank that that the, that they enter onto. Yeah. Anyway, um, but of course, I was my I was drawn to the physics prize, 
as you'd imagine. Um, this was awarded to Alessandro Corbetta, Jasper Musen, Chung Min Lee, Roberto Benzi, and Federico Toshi for conducting experiments to learn why pedestrians do not constantly collide with other pedestrians. Now, because they can see the other pedestrians coming, is that? <laughs> Look, essentially, essentially, that's what it, that's what it is. But essentially, what they no, it was like they were trying to work out. Yeah, I see the dynamics of pedestrian movements in crowded in crowds, essentially. And, um, and I think it's fascinating because, I mean, obviously walking, um, is a complicated thing on its own. I mean, we've seen efforts to get programmed robots to walk. Um, I have, you know, babies who are learning to walk and seeing their kind of struggling to learn all the different kind of things, elements involved, but, um, so how humans manage to do it successfully in big crowds and not bump into each other, I think is an interesting question. Um, but also how like certain patterns and behaviors emerge in these circumstances, um, as if there are sort of, you know, forces involved acting on the people involved. And in this case, there was a force, or at least a physicist like modeled it as if there was kind of a force acting between the, the pedestrians. They called it a social interaction force. It basically involves people's comfort zones, um, kind of used to avoid collisions. So essentially what they did is they they um, installed sensors under the platforms of Eindhoven Railway Station in the Netherlands. And over six months, they observed five million pedestrians and um, watched how they, they behaved. They said on average, people keep, people roughly keep a distance about 1.4 meters, uh, minimum of 75 centimeters from each other. Um, and they did, yes, subconsciously, constantly avoiding collisions by changing their, changing the base of their path. Essentially, people were constantly kind of, not even thinking about it, just moving around to avoid, to avoid collisions. Um, there were about 18,000 instances they found where people had potential collisions, like they're directly facing each other. And only about 80 of these that actually collide. Um, normally people, yeah, as you would say, they would adjust to get out of the way. Uh, so they, what they did is they just like, they modeled it as if there is a, uh, there, there are two social forces they introduced. Okay. It was a long range force, which is based on sight and then a short range force when you kind of got an imminent collision that prevents the, that imminent collision. And yeah, and that's, they, they managed to show the dynamics work. It's like, it sounds really unimportant. I got to say, describing <laughs> to you guys like this and seeing your skeptical faces, but I thought it was very interesting and it kind of shows how comfort zones and that kind of thing may have a, um, like a practical purpose perhaps. Mm. Did, do you think that comfort zone range would change depending on what country you're in? Um, look, quite possibly. Um, and, but you know, this is like done in a crowded, um, public transport station. So, you know, and that's kind of the circumstance where people are forced to be close together. Mm. But look, no, look at the, there is, look, we'll go a bit further because this is actually paired with another prize they awarded. Um, the Ignobles don't stick to the main kind of Nobel categories. This second prize is for what they call kinetics. Um, which is kind of another variant of physics, I suppose, but they weren't necessarily physicists involved with this one. Uh, and this was awarded to research in Japan by Hisashi Murakami, Claudio Feliciani, Yuta Nishiyama, and Katsuhiro Nishinari for conducting experiments to learn why pedestrians do sometimes collide with other pedestrians. Um, but it's essentially covering a lot of the same thing, but they did actually experiments. In this case, what they did was they got groups of people to walk towards each other and see what happened. 
And generally what happens when you have groups of people walking towards each other is they form kind of laneways, like walking in single file, following someone in front of them. And that's how you sure. get through yeah, a part. And you're probably all familiar with this happening in crowds. But then what they did is they gave people basically phones and made them do stuff on their phones to distract <laughs> them. And they found that it caused much more confusion. The rows were much less much more chaotic um you know the obviously the people who were distracted were more likely to bump into someone but um the people behind them kind of were also kind of confused because they're trying to follow the leader and so the person in front was doing the wrong thing and so they got all confused and even the people that they were facing about to collide with also had trouble avoiding the collision uh even though they weren't the one distracted um, which kind of, this is kind of, to me, this is actually delving into the first study. We talked about those sort of social interaction forces. This is trying to kind of work out what are the forces involved. And, you know, they conclude there is this sort of like nonverbal communication going on between people to avoid collisions. And um, they haven't figured out exactly how it's communicated. Apparently they're doing some follow-up research to try and put goggles on people to work out whether it's eye movements <laughs> and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, they're trying to figure out how exactly um, people communicate that they are on a collision course. Hmm. Sorry, I was just going to say, did, did either of these studies count how many times people almost collided with each other and then both stepped the same way and then both stepped the other way and then they couldn't get past each other? So they got well, stuck in that no, back and forth. And I wish they had because this is the kind of thing that I find fascinating because so this is all about, you know, kind of modelling people's behaviour uh, with physics and other kind of, you know, related type of things. And, you know, we kind of think ourselves as independent beings who will choose to do, but we follow certain patterns as if there are, we're just particles with forces acting on us. And when you're in that kind of situation, you're doing that little dance backwards and forwards, it feels sometimes as if you completely don't have control. Like you're programmed to do a certain movement and you're just stuck in this loop. You know, then you do that thing <laughs> where you, you go back and forwards and then you, you look at each other and you laugh and you go, ha ha, we're stuck. And then you do the same thing again. And it's like, how are we ever going to get out of this? Um, so, look, I think that is fascinating. Um, and this is the kind of thing there is a lot more to delve into. I mean, the, the Japanese experiment, yes, they showed, like, the formation of the lanes and stuff like that. So some of the kind of the, the structures, I suppose, be happens in crowds. But, um, like, in the earlier study, there were some other things that they just didn't understand. Like, apparently that um, in their area they were studying, about one person per 1,000 just turned around and left on the same side of the tunnel. Um, didn't ha didn't matter if they were alone and there was no motivation for them to do it. This would just happen. And they don't understand why certain behaviours just happen um, with large numbers of people. And yeah, it's just kind of this weird stuff that happens when people are in these circumstances. We don't really understand some of these movements. So I find that fascinating when people have these things acting on them that's kind of controlling our movements but we don't really know what they are. These kind of unconscious things and it could be like these interactions with other people that we're not aware of happening but it's part of what makes us be able to work as a society in the big crowds and and get some sort of um, order out of chaos, I suppose. And so, yeah, I find this really fascinating. Like I said, it makes you laugh and then it makes you think and it certainly made me think and I'm, um, 
a little bit obsessed by it, as you can tell. I think, you know, we, we better hope the physicists don't get too involved because I know what physicists do when they want to find out how particles behave is that they get them and they shoot them at each other really <laughs> fast and see what happens. So well, we don't really want them to do that. With it's only a matter of time, Stu. Well, in the modelling, they did, um, they did like, take into account people who are running as well as people walking. I mean, imagine in the real situation they were examining, there were some people who would be, say, running for their train and moving a lot faster. So they had to take into account runners and walkers uh, in their calculations. So, yeah, there are people that move at higher speed, maybe not kind of at, like, <laughs> at a speed of light, as you might see in... A particle accelerator, but sure, it's only a matter of time till we get to that point. Pedestrian accelerator, coming soon. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.